I like that line where with hopefulness he dispelled the despair of the grave, the fear and despair. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, and if you're our guest, we welcome you. Um, We have, I think I counted about 12 of our families who traveled, some out of state, some just within the state, but it's great to have you with us this morning. And I invite you to open your scriptures to Genesis chapter 3. The candle will stay lit for the entire service and then we'll blow it out because it's always a good idea with flame over dry branches to make sure it's extinguished. We will not have a a separate lesson for our children today as we follow the holiday schedule. Um, We will keep our children in here with us. Uh, Rumor was going around in my house that this is a two-hour service this morning. That's, that's, That's a rumor. It's three hours. (laughs) It's actually going to be the same time, quarter after, Lord willing, uh, we will be finished here together, and there is no ABS or Sunday school, so the holiday schedule, starting later, no children's um, lesson allows our workers to get rest, they work uh, throughout this time, throughout the whole year, uh, and we're thankful for them, but also good to have them in here with us. Hope, that's what the first candle represents. Advent means arrival or coming, and there's a word closely associated with hope, and that is the word promise. It's the promise of a Savior's arrival that brings hope. It's the promise of His second Advent that brings hope. Now, Christmas Day for many, Even unbelievers holds the anticipation of a special time together with friends, with family, with gifts for most people. And it's interesting how this time of year affects behavior and mood. I mean, already there's this anticipation, even in our home, of getting the lights out on the house and putting the tree up, which traditionally has been on my birthday, and it's starting to creep a little earlier every year. We're, we're like never on Thanksgiving Day, people. Uh, it's got to be at least the day after. But there's this anticipation of a season, even with those with no particular sense of Christ's first coming and his work on our behalf. There is significance in this time of year for people. Every card, carol, tree, wreath, lit house, brightly wrapped gift increases the anticipation of a specific day. That's been the case for some of us throughout our entire life as we know it. And I find it interesting that the anticipation, the annual coming, if you would, of an entirely fictional character can bring such hope even to people who know better and who are way overspending to make that one day Special. There's something special about looking forward to a specific day. Here's the point. The future and our view of it, even the immediate future, December 25th, influences our behavior and attitude. We play specific songs as we anticipate the day. We do certain festivities as we anticipate a certain day. Some in our family have already brought gift, bought gifts for others in anticipation of that special day. And all of it moves. So what we, 
what we think, what we believe, what we imagine about the future fine-tunes our affections right now. And that is also true when it comes to the bigger picture of God and His world and His plan. Every good promise generates hope. Every fearful promise spawns anxiety. Every good promise generates hope. Every fearful promise spawns dread and anxiety. See, that's, that's the negative side to hope. It's the, I hope that never happens. Like me as a young boy with a dentist. I hope that appointment never came. I hope he doesn't have to drill again. I hope if he drills, he gives me Novocaine this time. True story. I hope he doesn't hit a nerve again. Right? That's the negative side of hope. I hope that doesn't happen. Here's the point. There, there is this thing called hope that anticipates and expects something and it can either be positive or negative. And young people, you, you will have both teachers and peers tell you that Christianity is foolishness. I want you to listen to this because you're going to have teachers, even at your young age, and peers, if you're in that kind of a setting, tell you that Christianity is a made-up religion. That when you die, you either simply cease to exist or everybody universally is going to be okay. It's going to work itself out. They will argue there is no good reason to believe in the Bible any more than you should believe in other religious writings or mermaids or genies in bottles. And for some of you, you've already heard that rhetoric, maybe not as blatant as that, but it's been sown into your mind and into your heart. But here's what they overlook to their own destruction. The 66 books of the Bible that many of you have next to you or you have in your lap right now, unlike any other writings, any other religious writings, any other historic writings, include predictive prophecies. These are prophecies that were foretold before the event happened. You even saw the wording of that in Isaiah. I'm telling you these things even before they spring up. That's what Isaiah says. There are approximately 2,500 prophecies that appear in the pages of our scriptures. And they include predictive prophecies as a type of acid test to prove the scriptures' reliability and truth. Of those 2,500 prophecies, 2,000 have already been fulfilled. Intricately fulfilled. That leaves us with approximately five hundred more that stretch out into some point in the future that will also be intricately fulfilled. The point of prophecy is to open our eyes to the future so as to adjust our actions and affections in the present. Here's what it offers. Hope, promise, anticipation. So here's the big idea this morning. We're going to look at three Advent prophecies. We have to, we have to limit our scope. There are so many 
prophecies that revolve even just around the arrival of Jesus Christ the first time. We're going to look at three, and this is what they are intended to do. These, these Advent prophecies are intended to generate expectation and hope, and their precise fulfillment of something that's already happened is intended to nurture the same expectation for and hope in Christ's second Advent. So we live between two Advents. They're like bookends. And I don't know at what point we are at. I'm, I'm thinking as I read Hebrews 1 and as I understand the scriptures that we are a lot closer to the second bookend than the first. But we live in between these two Advents, these two arrivals, these two comings. And the wise person will say everything that was prophesied about that first Advent happened. So then what should I expect in light of the promises of the second advent. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's consider three advent prophecies and ask this question. How do these prophecies generate hope? We're going to look at Genesis 3.15. Hope in the promise of a rescuer. We're going to look at Isaiah 7.14. Hope in the sign of the arrival of God's son. And we're going to look at Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Hope in the prophesied birthplace of the coming king. First of all, I've asked you to open to Genesis chapter 3. Hope in the promise of a rescuer. Now, what happened in Genesis 3? A lot. What specifically? Okay, the fall. Okay, so Genesis is not primarily about creation. You only get two chapters out of 50 that talk about creation. So it's not primarily about creation, but it hinges on creation. All of a sudden in Genesis chapter 3, one of God's created creatures slithers into the garden or walks into the garden if you believe that the curse involved the removal of his feet. There's nothing clear in there, but you have the serpent. He's always addressed as the serpent and he slithers into the garden. And you know, every week we are reminded of the effects of the fall. This past week, we were reminded of the effects of the fall. Hundreds of lives killed in Egypt as a result of the fall. The terrifying reality of sin and the horrifying deaths of human evil remind us of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And there's there's like the inner justice department in our heart cries out and says, where is justice? Certainly there has to be a holy judge who holds people accountable, even if they seem to get away with it in this life. There's just something wired into us that cries out for that. And some days, folks, we need look no further than the darkness of our own heart. To realize the effects of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. So what do you have in Genesis chapter 3? You have the serpent approach the woman. That's significant. He twists God's words. Okay, I'm just going to quote. Did God actually say? Now, when God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who did he say that to? Back in Genesis chapter 2, he says that to Adam even before Eve is created. The serpent 
one of the lower parts of God's creation, slithers from the bottom up and speaks to the woman, usurping around her, her head, Adam. And he twists God's word and he causes her to doubt God's goodness. Listen to what the serpent says. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. He's keeping something from you. He's not trustworthy. You can't trust him. Then you have the dismantling of God's ordained leadership structure. The serpent said to the woman. God told Adam in Genesis 3.17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. That doesn't mean, men, that you never listen to the voice of your wife. What it means is that Adam, as the leader, is responsible. When you move into Romans chapter 5, it does not talk about the one sin of Eve. It talks about the one sin of Adam. You have this reversing of this God-ordained authority structure, and the serpent speaks to the woman and then she desires something that's off limits when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to, was to be desired to make one wise. That ushers in then the disobedience to God's command. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And sin enters into humanity. And a lot of times, as Greg Gilbert said we define sin as missing the mark. And that seems kind of innocent because you have this picture of an archer aiming at a target on a haystack or some kind of safe background. And he went on to say that's, that, that is a sense of the picture where you miss the mark. But true sin is actually if you're in this archery competition and the king is watching and you go to aim at the bullseye, you actually turn around and take a shot at the king. That's the horrifying reality of rebellion against God. The very curse God warned would come with that choice. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what did Adam and Eve gain? Well, their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. They hid from God. And they were afraid. That's what sin brought. Matter of fact, Genesis 3.10 says, Adam responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. By their own choice, the relationship they had with God had changed. Now, in Genesis 3, 16 to 19, if you just glance down that, since, since you have that open, God explained how the curse would affect their life that remains on earth, right? There would be pain in childbearing. Matter of fact, the ground out of which the tree of the knowledge of, evil, of knowledge of good and evil grew, the ground would be cursed. And now Adam would have to work through sweat and toil. And then in Genesis 3, 23, and probably one of the saddest things at the beginning of Scripture, God sends Adam and Eve out of the garden. This incredible garden, place of paradise and safety and security and acceptance, and they have to leave. Why? Because of sin. What fear, shame, guilt, and hopelessness 
That's what you sense when you're reading Genesis 3. You're only three chapters in to the Bible and you have this very sad, horrific story. And what you already, what's already, so you have this beautiful creation and God sees everything and it is good and it's good and there's only one prohibition, that's the goodness of God. You can enjoy everything except one thing. And they take a shot at the king and they're expelled from the garden. You're not even three full chapters and you just, and what we need is hope. And that's exactly what God gives. God gives to us hope. As a matter of fact, it's kind of couched in his words to the serpent. See, God is now going to speak to the serpent. And I want you to look at Genesis 3, verse 15. Because God gives hope by promising a rescuer. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity. That's hostility and opposition. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring. So the serpent is going to have offspring and her offspring. He shall brute. He not offspring collectively, but now a singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse has long been known as the Proto-Evangelium, first gospel. There will be enmity. Notice some individual features of this verse. There will be opposition between the serpent and the woman. Why the woman? Well, she chose the fruit. No, I don't think so. I think it's it's a redemptive purpose in the sense that though she took part in the downfall of humanity, she now will take a very special part in producing its Savior. There is hope in that. It refers specifically not to offspring completely, but an offspring, he who would be born and rescue his people. There will be enmity between offspring of the serpent, offspring of the woman. The word offspring is simply Seed, it's the word zera, and you have this promise. You actually have the, that, that Hebrew word is, is like a, a thread woven throughout the entire book of Genesis all the way into the New Testament, that there is a seed that is going to come about and be for the downfall of the serpent. As Jesus said in John eight forty four. by the way, you start to see this, this serpent offspring in Genesis 4 with Cain. And Cain murders his brother. He is of the offspring of the serpent. It's what Jesus said in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. That's the serpent's offspring. And your will is to do your father's desires. So when people go into a mosque and they start shooting and they blow themselves up. That is the serpent's offspring because they desire to murder other people it's just a black dark picture of the horrifying reality of sin john says this in first john 3 8 whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil that's the offspring for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of god appeared advent was to destroy the works of the devil 
In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls them the sons of disobedience. So here's the promise in Genesis 3.15. From the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the serpent's head. And it will reverse the offspring of the serpent. The woman would ultimately produce the source of his destruction. So the woman's offspring called he is Christ. He shall bruise your head. Listen to Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That is a fatal head crush. The promise of this, as I said, begins to be fulfilled in Genesis chapter 4. You see the ungodly seed of Cain. But then in Genesis 4.26, people begin to call on the name of the Lord. This begins a godly line that lives in opposition to the line of Cain. Let me just read to you a few passages where God affirms this promise. Because, because it almost seems, if you read into, into Genesis 4, that the serpent's offspring will actually find success. And it doesn't. And listen to what God says in Genesis 22. In your offspring, he's talking to Abraham, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Genesis 26, 4. I will multiply your offspring. Same word, seed, Zerah. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now it's going to get more specific in identifying the messianic deliverer in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter. So this is a ruler. This is a king who's coming of this particular line, this offspring. The scepter shall not depart from Judah Okay, so this particular he of Genesis 3.15, who will crush the serpent's head, is now going to be from what tribe? From Judah. Where was Jesus from? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, let's just take a breath here. God preserved his promise, even against what seemed like impossibility. For example, Abraham and Hagar. Sarah's barrenness. Sarah's lying. Isaac's favoritism. Jacob's deception. Joseph being mistreated by his brothers, falsely accused in a foreign country and imprisoned. So how does the promise of Genesis 3.15, how does the promise of a rescuer generate hope? Here, here's hope. In the very same chapter where sin is introduced into the world, immediately after you are given a promise that one will come and he will rescue by crushing the serpent's head. That gives you hope. It also gives you an indicator of what you should start to begin to see from Genesis 4 to Revelation 22. Listen to Galatians chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Genesis 3, by becoming a curse for us. When did he do that? When did Jesus become a curse? 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He was cursed when he was crucified. But listen to this. Listen to the connection. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. You see the connection now all the way from Genesis and that offspring and Christ who becomes a curse, who dies and delivers that death blow to Satan's head, rises from the dead. And now we have the benefits of Abraham in Christ. Let's look at a second passage. Turning your Bibles to Micah chapter five. If you're not sure what page, just go to go to Matthew, first book in the New Testament and go and reverse just a couple books. This is a well-known Christmas passage. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And I want, I want to note this morning the precision of this prophecy that was made approximately 700 years even before Jesus was born. Now, the person of Christ is eternal. We call that the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. But there's going to be a distinction here because the eternal Christ takes on flesh. He becomes a man. Look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and we'll read down to the first part of 3. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, this text does a lot more than identify the birthplace of Jesus. Of course, if you remember, this is also the birthplace of what king? Shepherd boy. David. Okay, and, and matter of fact, if you, you'll see this a little later on in 1 Samuel 17. It says, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. So you have this new Davidic king. You have this this better than David. By the way, Matthew's genealogy, it's going to be written to the Jewish people, presenting to them their king. The genealogy is very important because it traces it back to two people. To Abraham, okay, the Jewish pedigree. And to David, those are the two key people that Matthew traces his genealogy back to. So you have this this sort of racial and royal pedigree. Now this one like David in David's line is prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. And what's interesting about that is when Micah prophesied that, they were under Assyrian domination. It seemed extremely unlikely that this, this new David would be born in Bethlehem when this prophet Micah is saying this and they're under Assyrian control. But three other truths other than just the birthplace. Again, Messiah will be a ruler and a king from you shall come forth for me. One who is to be ruler in Israel. Secondly, the ruler's arrival at Bethlehem would not be his first manifestation. Did you see that? Look at Micah 5 two. who's coming forth is from. What does it say? From of old, from what's the next description? Ancient of days in Daniel chapter nine, you have this picture of this, this son of man coming on the clouds, who is also the ancient of days. This is a reference back to eternality 
This king is from eternity, but he's going to be born in Bethlehem. A seeming impossibility. So Bethlehem does not mark Christ's beginning. It does mark Jesus' beginning. Jesus, his human name, given to him at birth. But the eternal son, as John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The eternality of Jesus Christ. But then in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we must not confuse form and essence or form and nature. His nature is eternal because he's God. His form as he's born is human. And that's the beginning point of Jesus but not the beginning point of the eternal Son of God. Third thing in Micah chapter 5, 2, the ruler will be born through the labor pains of a woman. Normal human birth, Micah chapter 5, verse 3, when she who is in labor has given birth. Now, the fulfillment of the birthplace and the birth of a king is seen in Matthew. Let me just read to you a few passages out of Matthew and Luke. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ. Remember, that's not Jesus last name. It's not his surname. It's a title. It's a description. Christ is the New Testament version of Messiah. Okay, Mashiach, Christos. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised deliverer, rescuer. Now, Herod, Herod's nervous. And so he inquires of the wise people where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, Matthew 2, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Guess where they quote? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. They had been overlooked, but they won't be. Why? Because this one, the he of Genesis 3.15, is going to be born there. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So that's why at Christmas we sing, O little town of Galilee. Right? O little town... Jerusalem makes sense. That's a kingly city. No, what do we sing? O little town of Bethlehem. You who were so insignificant that you weren't even counted among the clans of Judah shall come out from you the lion of the tribe of Judah. How does Micah 5 2 generate hope? Luke 2.15 says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. John 7.42, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So how does Micah 5 verse 2 give hope? The finer points of prophecy, even a specific overlooked town had been fulfilled. Think of the odds that were against them. Assyrian control at the time of Micah's prophecy. Joseph is all the way up in Galilee with a very pregnant wife. Roman occupation. 
There's no reason that they would travel except that from a secular government, they said, you have to go and you have to go right now. Against all odds, this prophecy is fulfilled. And what you need to consider is that all the other prophecies about his second coming, even though against all odds, will also be fulfilled. One last passage this morning and then we're done. Hope in the sign of the arrival of God's Son. Turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. Second book of your Bible, Exodus, centers on the divine death of all firstborn males in Egypt. The Gospels begin with a divine birth signifying God's initiative in providing a Savior He then becomes, his person and his work become the center of four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. When we turn to Matthew and to Luke, you have the birth accounts of this Christ. And we encounter what is called the virgin conception. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Have you ever gotten directions from someone and they tell you there's this really obvious sign and you miss it? This happened recently when we traveled in another country and there was supposed to be this really obvious, this conspicuous sign that our lodge was that way. We didn't see anything. We drove 10 miles out of the way. Oh, it's got to be back that way. We took these dirt, spooky roads that led us to creepy little buildings. And we're like, that's not, that can't be it. And we got in and, and the sign was, what is the sign supposed to be? Clear, lit, right? If a bridge is out, you expect there to be caution tape and caution lights Maybe somebody there, you know, waving you off at that point. And in Isaiah 7, there's going to be this conspicuous, clear sign. Not like some of the signs that people have given you in directions. Oh, no, you can't miss it. No, it's the brown dog on the corner by the White House. The dog moved. No, it's not like that. This one is clear. A matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 7, there's going to be something that's never happened before And a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son. In all of history, that's never happened. So when it does, mark it. Then this prophecy will be fulfilled. The scriptures teach that Mary became pregnant even though she was a virgin. In Matthew's gospel, it is expressed with these words. Listen to what Matthew records in Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Joseph's reaction was normal. What did he intend to do? He intended to divorce her. And at that point, an angel intervened and explained, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That virgin conception is affirmed in verse 25, but he knew her not 
Okay, referring to intimate relations because he knew her. They were already betrothed. It's not like I'm not going to know this person at all until this happens. No, he's not going to know her physically until she had given birth to a son. What is interesting, and, and there's going to, we're just going to get really technical here because we're going to be done in five minutes. There is controversy about the word used in Isaiah 7.14 because the word that is used for virgin can be interpreted young maiden. Isaiah 7.14 may pose that difficulty, Alma, young maiden, but Matthew 1.18 and 25 are not difficult to interpret. It says before they came together while she was still a virgin. The Jews never applied this passage, Isaiah 7.14, to Messiah, even though the Greek translation, the Septuagint, accurately translated Alma by using the word Parthenos in the Septuagint, which is the word for virgin. There's this understood meaning that Isaiah 7.14 did not simply mean young maiden. So even though Isaiah 7.14 offers difficulty, the text is reference to a miraculous birth. So how can, let's just go back to Isaiah 7.14 real quick. How can a woman giving birth to a child be this incredible, spectacular sign that causes wonder? When that happened more than 100 times already today. Even in hospitals in Centennial and Littleton and Highlands Ranch. How is that a sign? Hey, you'll know this prophecy is fulfilled when a woman gives birth to a child. What? No. You'll know this prophecy is fulfilled if a virgin gives birth to a son. And by the way, when he's born, guess what they're going to call him? Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is astonishing. A sign requires some unusual circumstance. If a child is born of a woman, no big deal. But if that young child was born of a virgin, then something that causes astonishment and wonder and hope has occurred. And this is exactly what happened. Listen to what, listen to what Matthew says. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, when she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is Matthew speaking. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And guess who he quotes? Isaiah 7:14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And you say, that's difficult to believe. How am I supposed to believe that? That's impossible. Can I remind you of another miraculous birth? Not to that level. And it had everything to do with the seed that comes out of Genesis 3.15 through Abraham, who was given a promise. And her name is Sarah. 
And here's what God told them. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Genesis 18:14. Because through Adam all the nations would be blessed. And through Adam and then through David and then through the tribe of Judah would come this seed a he that will crush the serpent's head. Emmanuel, God with us. Do you know our hope is not in a thing or an experience or an event or a vehicle. It is in a person. That person has been promised. He has been prophesied down to the exact improbable birthplace amidst improbable historical circumstances. And he's born And this sign, this sign that causes astonishment and wonder. There's no way, I mean, Bethlehem, I mean, yeah, the chances, but born of a virgin, prophesied, and then affirmed. Therefore, in light of these fulfilled prophecies and those that will soon be fulfilled, listen to what Peter says. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ, talking about his second advent. I'm going to invite the worship team up right now, and while they get ready, and as we sing, How Can I Keep From Singing, I just want to read an excerpt from 1 John. You can close your Bibles, you can put your stuff down. Matter of fact, go ahead and stand, and I will read this excerpt, and then we will sing together. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ, he writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. By the way, I'm just reading scripture. This is 1 John chapter 3. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And this is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit 
whom he has given us. Let's pray.